Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1406, for the week of Monday, August 8th, 2022. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, how's it all going? And I just want to go ahead and start off and give the folks over at NASA Wallops a big giant salute. They launched a sounding rocket uh, this evening. Uh, This was Rocksat 10. It was for... Uh, a whole bunch of students uh, getting some good data from from that. So great job to the folks over at NASA Wallops. And welcome as well, Dr. Kat Robinson. Wonderful to be here from beautiful Ghana country um, down in South Australia. All right. Well, I'm joining you all from near the Space Coast, a little bit south of it, because it has been quite busy. Uh, We are going to start off with a, an event that happened last week from recording this. That was August 4th, 2022, which is one of the busiest days in spaceflight history. And that was because we had six rocket launches all on the same day. Two from China, as well as one from New Zealand, and three from the United States. The first was Rocket Lab, which launched one of their Electron rockets with the NRO... Well, with NROL-199 for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office as part of a small sat network that they have been launching and contracted with by Rocket Lab. Yeah, and I believe, Sawyer, too, to jump in on that, that was a joint uh, joint effort, I think, between the National Reconnaissance Office here in the United States and the Australian Defense Department, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Yep. So- ADF. Yeah, so I thought I'd, I thought I would get your attention with that one, Kat. <laughs> well, you know, we, we don't always have as many launches down in our in our area of the world, but it's really nice to, to see that picking up as we talked about in episode fourteen or five with our um, Equatorial Launch Australia um, launches, which uh, ran into the CEO CEO of um, of ELA at an event last week and said that he would be happy to come on and talk to us sometime. So that's something to look forward to in the future. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to that because I've I'm I've actually I actually go out of my way to look for news coming out of uh, Australia and New Zealand about their their space agencies as soon as I wake up early in the morning, um, and I'm I, I'm really eager to hear about about what's going on in Australia. Oh yeah, happy happy. Of course, a little a little off topic, but I uh, last week was at a roundtable. The Australian Space Agency is looking to. Um, seek feedback on the national space strategy. And so um, they're gathering stakeholder inputs. And so some of us at Flinders were down there and um, got to say hi again to um, to the CEO. We were actually spoke together at an event a few weeks prior to that. So um, the nice thing about Australian space is the Australian space circle is small. 
And the nice thing about um, having come to Flinders and being in Adelaide is that most of Australian space is here in South Australia. Um, so something for our listeners to look forward to. I'm sure that um, any launches that happen here in Australia will be able to get some some great interviews about them. And Kat, if I can just put in one more little plug, is that still opened? Are people, are they looking for um, input from uh, from just the general public in Australia or is it just strictly the space area? And if so, is that window still open and how long is it open until? So I'm not sure what their um, public consultation, like general public consultation is, but they are still in the process of doing um stakeholder consultations and um, they're wrapping up sort of some round round table events that they had in eight cities here across Australia. And then they're going to be doing some um, uh, focused forums. The first one is going to be on space workforce, which will take place in Sydney, um, which one of my colleagues is going to. And we are um, actually speaking with the agency now because we think that they should do a policy uh, forum and they should have it here uh, in Adelaide because um, with one or two exceptions, everyone who does either space law or policy in Australia is at Flinders. So we, we certainly think that we should be consulted. <laughs> so if anyone from the space agency is listening, <laughs> we would love to, to, to have that um, happen. But yeah, it's a really interesting process. And, and as they roll out more, I have more information, happy to chat about it on, on the show. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that because that's what I was going to ask you to do. If you once that's all wrapped up and and they've got it tied up in a nice, neat little bow, please, I, I really want to hear more about that. So keep that in in the in your back pocket and remember it for us because I'm really, really intrigued. I want to I learn. I definitely want to learn more about this. Yeah, of course. And Sawyer too to get back to Rocket Lab. Which uh, go ahead. I do want to point out, by the way, that all of Rocket Lab missions have a very unique name. And in case you're wondering, this one was called the Antipodine Adventure. Yeah, the the and I loved if you if anybody saw the mission patch for it, I I love the mission patch. You had the the alligator sort of in the background there, and then had the eagle, which I guess was was representative of of the uh, National Reconnaissance Office, also flying in the sky overhead. And uh, I think it was Rocket Lab too that posted an interesting picture. Uh, juxtaposing the mission patch with the empty launch pad out there and the colors in the background at the that this individual took the photograph. I think it might have been their PAO took the photograph of the empty launch pad. And uh, during I believe it was either sunrise or sunset and and juxtaposed it with the mission patch and said we couldn't have asked for anything better because it it looked almost identical to the backgrounds of both which i thought was kind of sweet but um the other thing too that i have to mention really quick is that rocket lab also sent nasa to the moon with the capstone mission and that has uh that's linked very very closely with a story we're going to talk about a little later but Capstone is a uh, CubeSat or a small sat that is going to go ahead and go into the same orbit that's planned for the Lunar Gateway and basically make sure to, to kind of take a look out there. It's sort of a Pathfinder mission. It's going to go ahead and take a look at the orbit to make sure it's you know it's kind of stable and before Gateway gets out there. So uh, th- that mission is, is really, if you think about it, might have been the first Artemis mission. So... Uh, 
thanks to Rocket Lab for getting us to the moon, and and thanks to Rocket Lab for uh, for getting the uh, National Reconnaissance Office uh, going with their mission as well. Yes. Uh... Continuing on with August 4th, there were also two missions that I do want to mention from China, one of which was the Terrestrial Ecosystem Carbon Inventory Satellite, or TICUS, which launched at 8.40 a.m. local time from uh, aboard a Long March 4B from the Taiwan Satellite Launch Center. Uh, in addition, there was also believed to be, based off of uh, observations, the launch of an experimental spacecraft uh which is reusable and looks very much like the X-37B, which is the U.S.'s secret mini space shuttle, for lack of a better way to describe it, which that uh, launched on a Long March 2F as well. So they were both Long, long March 2s, right? Uh, well, it was a Long March 4 and then a Long March 2. Because it was the infamous launch Long March 5, I believe, that kind of put that larger piece of... Uh, of that, uh, I believe it was the second stage of that, that kind of just, or the first stage that just kind of stayed there aloft and they really didn't have a plan to take it down. And everybody was kind of wondering where this thing was going to land. And since the, there's no way propulsively to go ahead and bring that back, China, you know, just basically kind of washed their hands of it and basically said, it's not our, our problem. You deal with it. And, uh, and that was really it. So the whole world was watching that whole thing and wondering where this stage was going to land. I think it finally did land somewhere just off the Philippines. And I think maybe it did, parts of it did make, make landfall. And uh, um, so it, it's just something that China, I think is not really being totally responsible about with their, with their flights. And by the way, we're going to go through this again. Um, I believe it is toward the winter, toward the end of the year. Um, or the winter time here in 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 the northeastern U.S. Um, because I think that's when Long March Five B is scheduled to uh, Long March Five is is scheduled to launch again. Yeah, that mission Speaking was. Speaking of, um, uh, I was just because that gonna mission say. was a ri the original one was for the uh, newest module to their space station Tiangong. That's correct. Thank you. Go ahead, Ken. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, speaking of um, um, space debris and, and things, rocket bodies that hit Earth, did you guys hear about the space debris that hit Australia? Yes, indeed. The uh, the I believe that was the SpaceX trunk from yes from Crew thing. One. A, yeah, from Crew One, it um, uh, fell in a field in, in NSW, and a farmer's great picture just. Standing next to, I mean, great that it fell in a field because it certainly was a large enough piece of junk to have done some serious damage if it if it hit anything other than you know um, a farmer's field. But it was very interesting because, of course, the first call that the the um, the Aussies made was to the news, so they didn't call the, the Australian yeah. Space Agency. They, you know, they were just like, let's call ABC, and um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, it was it, I, it was I, interesting, and there was. A few pieces of junk. It wasn't just the one. I mean, it, I. <laughs> it was in a sheet paddock, and it just—it's a great picture. I mean, it's like, and for those of you who are not aware, I think Australians are like so tall. Everything here is too tall for me, and I'm not that short. Um, so there's this, you know, farmer just out there, <laughs> and this piece of junk is way bigger than him. And there's another one that fell as well too. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, so I figured yeah. uh, while we're on the while we're on the 
<laughs> just mentioning some debris that might have hit the Philippines that we also got some um, some space X junk in the trunk. In the <laughs> <laughs> I love that you put that cat. Um, I believe too, uh, some SpaceX representatives were, were going to go out there and take a look to, you know, either authenticate that this was indeed theirs. And, and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen thereafter. Cause I'm, I just remember the whole Skylab thing. So I was going to say, at least there's no radio contest or radio campaign to get someone to pay for damages. Yeah, exactly. Or for so, cleanup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I visited some uh, a, a high school in rural Australia for something on Flinders. And um, I said, you know, in, in the U.S. has long history now of littering their space junk on Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but as far as I know, no littering ticket has yet been issued to, to SpaceX, although there were some, some snarky comments about um, – maybe SpaceX's attitude, but that's, you know, Aussie, well, Aussie humor is sort of snug at everybody. <laughs> give it time. Somebody's going to go ahead and write a ticket for littering and send it off to Elon and just, it'll be fun to see how he deals with that. But um, anyway, Sawyer, watch anyway. a Palooza t- 2022. That continues. Uh, we are going to kind of go slightly out of order here and mention, uh, as we transition to the United States now, uh, Blue Origin with their NS-22 mission, which uh, carried six people on a suborbital hop above the Kármán line, uh, the RSS First Step, uh, that mission successfully lifting off and landing safely back a couple hours after or that mission successfully lifting off the booster landing and then the capsule landing all of this shortly after 9 a.m eastern or 8 a.m local time in texas yep yep uh, i believe the the crew dubbed the mission titanium feather or something along those lines uh but again this was uh uh, a mix of individuals and, and uh, it's funny how, how these things just don't, and, and Kat, you and I were talking about this. It's just funny how, how these things don't make the headlines anymore. And I think that's the point. I agree. And, you know, it's, it's, you sort of hope that the space becomes routine. Um, but in the same thing, when you, you hope that space doesn't become complacent, like routine is good. Complacency is bad. And we've had, you know, a few examples of why complacency is bad in the history of space. But, um, you know, I hope it, it becomes routine and I hope it becomes normal. And I always hold on to that that hope by the time that I'm reaching my golden years of retirement, I can also, you know, have a quick little rocket <laughs> uh, ride up to see, to experience some weightlessness in space. But yeah, uh, as, as we were talking before the show, I think, you know, it's, it's, these things don't even sort of register and, and unless I happen to be on online when it's happening and I see people tweeting about it, but it's just not something that I'm seeking out the news anymore because, you know, how quickly has it become commonplace that we're sending up people on these blue origin flights, which is great. Yeah. The, the thing I'm looking forward to is having somebody fly an experiment on board. We haven't, I have not seen that yet, um, but I'm sure that's waiting in the wings somewhere. I would like to point out that there was uh, a fantastic moment shortly after the parachutes deployed where someone could be heard screaming uh, on the webcast from inside the capsule. 
Hooray, we're not going to die. Yes. I think that was there was one gentleman that won a model <laughs> rocket contest. And I think that might have been him screaming it. Um, because he was the youngest I think he was the youngest one on board. Um, but yeah, I, I, I actually, I was actually live tweeting that and I made a note of that. So yeah, Sawyer, thank you for the tickler. I appreciate that. Cause I, I heard that and I just, I just laughed out loud. I thought that was hysterical. It was in the moment. It was, we're wait, is, did they really just say that? Yes. <laughs> I'm well, sure. Nice I'm sure. You, when you hear the, the, you get to hear the non-professional astronauts, right? When you get to hear our space flight participants whatever you want to call them like it's really it's sort of interesting to get to hear um you know how they react to space because because space has been the domain of like civil and military exploration um you don't get to hear those sort of unfiltered reactions and responses so much to space because there is um, a lot of thought and attention given to what's the what's the image here that we're projecting so it's it's nice to sort of hear the um, the unfiltered sometimes. Yeah, but I'm I'm sure that that gave uh, Blue Origin PAO a bit of a heart attack down there. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong though. Parachutes deployed—that's always a good thing. Well, yes, when the when the drugs come out and the shoots come and the mains come out, nope that that's always a good sign. That means you're going to have a good day. Exactly, and. Uh... Now we move on to the other part of history that made that day. Besides the six launches in a single day, two of those happened at the Kennedy Space Center within about 12 and a half hours of each other, making it the closest that two launches have taken off orbital from the Space Coast since 1967. The first of which started off in the early morning hours uh, at around uh, 6.29 a.m. Eastern Time, as a United Launch Alliance Atlas V lifted off from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Kennedy Space Center, carrying Spears Geo 6. Uh, that is the space based infrared system satellite, in case you're wondering, and is in geostationary orbit, and it is the sixth, hence the name there. This was also the final launch of the 400 series of the Atlas V. It was a 421, so that means it is the final 4-meter fairing, or the pointier of the two compared to the other 5-meter fairing, with two solid rocket motors and one Centaur upper stage engine. That's what all those numbers meant, the 421. And it lifted off right on time as scheduled into the early morning hours, creating a gorgeous contrail. I was at the launch, and I have to say, I'd never seen this before. The contrail turned into a rainbow. It was pretty much all the colors of the rainbow straight across, and then it started to spread out as it went higher up, which those of us who cover launches like to call those jellyfish because it does kind of look like a top of a jellyfish spread out. Yeah, and wow. again, yeah, it, I, I saw some photo, photographs from the uh, from the site, Sawyer, and, and I was actually looking at, at, at the one you posted too, and I was like, that was just jaw-droppingly gorgeous and I, I was just i was so upset i i couldn't be there for that one but um indeed that uh, that final pointy atlas which i believe um tori bruno tweeted out 152 uh later when we heard that the satellite had had deployed um which meant that this was the 152nd 
successful ULA launch so far. They have got the um, they've got a they've got a perfect record. Knock on you know knock on wood uh, that uh, that they have that they've they've got going. I mean they, they've really really got a got uh, got it going over there over at ULA as far as their uh, their launch record is concerned. Uh, they've had a couple close calls, mind you, but. Um, and they and they were able to go ahead and and, and correct those, but uh, that's one heck of a launch record, 152 without a without a failure. Uh, exactly, they're extremely impressive. It's very reliable, and I will point out also, amazingly, it did go on the first try at the beginning of a window, of which I know ULA has been. I don't want to say mocked, but uh, there have been running jokes in the past about not launching on the first attempt typically with ULA. But again, as we just pointed out, it's not when it goes, it's the fact that it does go and it goes successfully. Yeah. And um, the other thing too, I'll, I'll mention about the payload. Um, this was the last of the Sibber series to, uh, to be lofted. Um, this, this was again for the, uh, the defense department uh, as the, the name suggests it is looking in the infrared. Uh, it is essentially part of the United States missile warning system. So this is the last of, of this particular series. I know there's another series kind of waiting in the wings, but this completes the Sibiris constellation and gives uh, the United States quite a number of eyes on the skies as far as uh, missile warning and missile missile detection and detection systems. So uh, um, we're, we're also, I also think too, that it provides some ground-based data and for, uh, for our warfighters. So this mission was, was really, really critical to get that whole constellation up and going. And um, ULA seems to understand the criticality of such missions and takes great care to make sure that everything works and everything works well, and that the the uh, the uh, the satellite is placed in the proper orbit, and would be able to deliver for the uh, for the client. And in this case, uh, the client is well. So are you and me, and anybody else that pays taxes here in the United States. So uh, uh, hats off to the United Launch Alliance. Grand job uh, on our behalf, really. So. Um, thanks a lot. Just want to point out, even if you're not in the U.S., if you're a U.S. citizen, you're still paying taxes. I was wondering about that, Kat. <laughs> so like, you're you're in the same boat. Okay, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. Yeah, the, I thought you were, the US thought you were now like exempt. The only countries, if not the only country, that it still taxes citizens. Um, you're still, you know, I still have to file a tax return every year. I have to um, report um, my income, uh, I have to, I mean, we do get an exclusion for the first amount, but um, yeah, yeah, I have to report money I have in foreign bank accounts. <laughs> so <laughs> trust me, me and the government, still friends. I I stand corrected. <laughs> Welcome to U.S. Civics 102 with Dr. Kat Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> moving right along. Well, before we move along, I feel like we should give our uh, Atlas 400 series a uh, a good final farewell. And what better way to send it off than to 
hear it send off oh, yes. the Sivers Geo 6 mission. As again, I was there bright and early in the morning, and uh, this is what it sounds like. And pay attention to this one because this one it's a little more gradual, but boy, does she purr for a long time. As I mentioned before the clip, I mean, this one, it was there are some launches that hit you right away in the chest and you just feel the punch. This one was kind of a gradual lead into it. And it just I don't know if it was just because of how humid it was that morning. It's gorgeously clear with essentially minimal to no clouds that it just kept lingering and lingering. I mean, as it went up and the contrail formed that rainbow color and you saw the jellyfish, it I mean, we're talking four or five minutes here, and you're still hearing a faint rumble. Obviously, we're not going to play all of that for you, so you're not just hearing five minutes of low rumbles. But it went on for at least five minutes, well past when you could stop seeing it. It was – I haven't heard one rumble that long in a very long time. So uh, she made Sounds her like farewell known. But yeah. you can actually see this one, unlike Vandenberg. <laughs> That's true. Now, Vandenberg, Vandenberg disappears fine. quickly, but you hear, you hear them for, for so, so long. That is very true. Yes, the Vandenberg Fog, in case you're unaware, is uh, if you go to see a launch out in California, there's a 95% chance you're just going to hear it and not be able to see it. Yeah, basically, the the going joke at Vandenberg is, yeah, we're going to go ahead and hear a good launch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Sawyer, that first off, thank you for collecting that that beautiful piece of audio. I think that sent that series out in, in grand style and uh, and wow just just thank you so much for sharing it and it kind of forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong but it was kind of reminiscent of the audio we collected for the parker solar probe and that was a delta four heavy i mean it, was, it had a, a similar kind of feel obviously yeah. it's a little different because you have the solid rocket motors on this one whereas the delta four heavy is just three common cores full of liquid fuel but yeah yeah i mean it it, it just struck me like that you know, that 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 was it just sound it had that that feel to it it really did
And so on top of that, uh, <laughs> your roving space reporter here uh, <laughs> over at uh, Cape Canaveral Space Force Station uh, stayed around and stayed awake for about 12 and a half more hours. Uh, at this point, I'm running on about 40 hours with no sleep by the time the second launch happened that same day. And uh, you may be able to hear me mumbling a little bit in the background of this launch audio when we get to it. But this was another extremely important mission. And this was KPLO, which sounds like the replacement to WKRP in Cincinnati, but is not a TV station or a TV show. It is the Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter. So Korea's first mission to the moon and technically SpaceX's first mission to the moon as well, sending it with their Falcon 9, lifting off at 7.08 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes, sir. The uh, The mission is actually called uh, Dana Uri. Um, it's, uh, again, this is South Korea's first lunar mission. It's designed to study the lunar surface and help us plan for future missions in and around the poles. And uh, it basically represents a, a first step, if you will, in in South Korea's uh, lunar exploration plans. And I believe if memory doesn't fail here, there is a camera on board uh, that is specially modified to go ahead and take a look at um, some really, really shadowy regions in on on the uh, the lunar poles there, especially the lunar south pole. I think it's here. It is. Yeah, I'm looking at a at a, uh, a website here from the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. Um, it's called Shadow Cam, and according to the website here, it's an ultra sensitive camera pro provided by NASA to. Uh, see permanently shadowed areas on the lunar surface. So this is really going to help not only South Korea's plans, but it will also help out um, the Artemis uh, endeavor as well. And so this should be, uh, th this, this is going to be critical. I believe it enters orbit around the moon in December. I think it's on a, um, sort of a, a ballistic trajectory right now, but um, it will, will essentially enter orbit sometime in December and they'll go ahead, they'll go through a commissioning phase. And I think that is going to be going into commission as early as January of 2023. So this is kind of an, an ambitious mission for South Korea. Again, this is their, their first attempt at a, and a lunar mission, and and again, hats off to SpaceX for being a part of it, and um, hats off to South Korea for giving us a hand. And let's see what Sha Shadow Cam can go ahead and deliver for uh, for the Artemis program. Absolutely, and uh, this launch was also unique in another way, in that uh, this is a pretty much straight to the moon mission. It used a ballistic lunar transfer. Uh, so essentially, once the second stage ignited, rather than working on a circularization burn and getting it into a proper orbit, it essentially shot it straight out on a path that will eventually have it uh, meet up at the moon, which it will then burn to capture into orbit around the moon. 
Yeah, I believe the the orbit. Um, if I'm looking at, uh, and this is coming from the, from what I again, this is coming from the Planetary Society. Um, after entering, it's going to enter a roughly uh, 100 kilometer circular orbit uh, around the moon. And I believe, according to the Planetary Society here, that will be a five year mission in and around the moon. So um, this is going to be kind of kind of interesting. We'll be getting some good photography for uh, for the Artemis three landing attempt. Yeah, and it will work its way down gradually to that point, starting yep. out with a much wider non-circular orbit, ending at that circular orbit, yes. Yep. So It's, um, it's a really unique, exciting mission, too. So, and yeah, I, go ahead, Sora, I'm sorry. And in comparison to the morning launch, it's a Falcon 9, which we've had many of here on the show, as there are plenty of launches of it. But this one, this one came out of the... Yeah, it came out of the starting line and just boom, right away came out super loud, super hit you in the chest, super rumble, and then kind of faded a lot quicker. So it was interesting. The uh, The morning one was more of a prolonged noise where you got to hear it more gradually and it kind of just echoed, whereas SpaceX went yeet and kind of just <laughs> hit you right at once and on its way it went. So, gee, Sawyer, do you have any audio for that? Nope. Oh, darn. <laughs> oh, well, you know, actually, hang on. Let me look through my folder. You know what I do? Convenient. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead Maybe and uh, share that with us? <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Here you go. You know what? Let's, let's just go ahead and play it. Yeah. Good. A few other interesting notes with this Falcon 9 launch in that the first stage successfully landed once again on a drone ship in the ocean. Uh, and also of note, this launch was the 35th successful orbital launch from the Kennedy Space Center slash Cape Canaveral Space Force Station this year. That makes it the most launches into orbit in a single year from the Space Coast. And keep in mind, that was as of August 4th. So there's still September, October, November, December, and well, the rest of August to go as well. So there's a lot of time still left, and we already now have the record. And most of those launches are Falcon 9s. Yep. And, 
you've got to applaud SpaceX. They are going ahead. They're plowing forward with Falcon 9. They're trying to make it look easy. Uh, it sure as heck isn't. But uh, they're trying to make it look easy, make it look routine, as, as Kat and I were kind of talking about. Uh, you don't want to become complacent either. Because rockets are finicky things. You never know what what's going to happen, and you never know when one is just going to bite you. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure SpaceX is the folks that are working at the HIF are doing their due diligence and making sure each one of these payloads are, are you know, going to be safe and, and doing their thing and, and making sure they're, they're being placed on target just in the right orbits or... Hey, if you happen to be South Korea, it's sending you on your way to the lunar to uh, to a lunar orbit. Exactly, but it's exciting to see the space coast come alive again. And yes, uh, SpaceX oh, is definitely making it a little easy, especially considering how many of their launches also launch at the beginning of their windows, or at least on their first day, if nothing else. I mean, the multi-user spaceport is alive and well. And I, Sawyer, I, I'm I'm still, and I've said this so many times on this program. I still remember standing in front of Atlantis for uh, STS-135 with all the clouds surrounding her, thinking, you know, my God, that's sort of like what the space program was like at, like during that time. You know, dark clouds, uncertainty, and there was Atlantis just sitting there telling us, hey, don't worry, I may be out of here, but things will be okay. And maybe we should have just sat there and listened to her a little bit longer. And it's interesting because I was uh, able to go inside Space Launch Complex 40 to uh, take a look at the Falcon 9 before the KPLO launch and take some photos, which will be posted in the show notes. And uh, the last time that I was inside the gates at Slick 40 was back in 2012 for the COTS 2-3 mission, or COTS 2 Plus as it was known at the time, uh, when Mark and I were out there. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. The pad has obviously evolved a lot more. The launch vehicle has evolved quite a lot more. But it was very interesting looking back and seeing the original Falcon 9 Block 1 with the old, old Dragon capsule, the one that's now on display at the Gateway yeah. Exhibit at the Kennedy Space Center, on the pad, and now here you are with, oh, this is the uh, 35th launch of the year. SpaceX already set their record for most launches of the Falcon 9 this year, and uh, yeah, they're sending a spacecraft to the moon from the same pad. And it's the second launch of that day. It was quite a uh, contrast. Indeed. Exciting time. Indeed yes. it is. Indeed it is. And the excitement continues as there is another major launch scheduled from the Kennedy Space Center in August, August 29th. And that should be the hint right away that we are talking about the first launch of the Space Launch System SLS on Artemis 1. The launch date is officially set with attempt number one scheduled for that date at 8.33 a.m. Eastern Time with backup dates on September 2nd and September yeah, the launch window for that date starts at 8.33 in the morning and ends at 10.33 in the morning. Um, this gives the Artemis 1 mission, if they do launch on time that day, uh, this gives uh, the Artemis 1 mission the 42-day uh, the duration mission um, at um, you know 42 days, 3 hours, and 20 minutes, according to the NASA website that I'm looking at here. And uh, which gives them a targeted splashdown uh, in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego. Um, they expect the uh, total mission miles to be about 1.3 million miles or 
if you're if you live in that world about uh, 20, uh, 2.1 uh, million kilometers um, the return speed by the way of the uh, Orion crew module is going to be and hold on to your hats 25,000 miles per hour and that's by the way one of the lead uh, mission requirements for uh, this particular flight, they want to make sure that that um, that that part of the uh, the system will operate the uh, the proper way, because um, you want to make sure that this thing is going to protect um, protect the crew going forward on Artemis two. In fact, I'm looking at right now the primary mission objectives for Artemis one. One is to dem- demonstrate the Orion heat shield that you know it can withstand the the high speeds and the high heat conditions when returning through earth's atmosphere um from uh you know translunar lunar missions and translunar velocities um they also want to make sure that the orion vehicle works um they want to demonstrate the operations and the, and the facilities during all mis- mission phases and by the way that also includes the space launch system or the sls I want to make sure that that vehicle is is able to go ahead and perform and do what it need what it needs to do as well. Um, and the uh, the third objective for this mission, and these are the primary ones, is to retrieve the Orion spacecraft after splashdown because that's going to have a ton of data on board. It's not going to be able to to deliver all the telemetry, you know, from the the downlinks. I believe um, the folks. Uh, at uh, one of the sessions I, I sat in on, said this is probably going to be one of the most wired vehicles that they've ever launched in the history of, of the program. Uh, there will be enough data points and enough enough telemetry collection going on board that spacecraft that, that it'll just make your head spin. Um, they do have three passengers on board, actually four, come to think of it, because I believe um, Sean the Sheep just joined from ESA. Um, the, uh, uh, w- the first one is a mannequin that'll be dressed in the full um, Orion gear. That will be uh, uh, Moonkin Campos, they've dum- dubbed him. Um, it's the name Campos was uh, taken from uh, a gentleman by the name of Arturo Campos, who helped uh, the Apollo 13 mission behind the scenes and helped get the crew back. He was one of the instrumental people behind the scenes. And I believe that name was selected through a uh, popular naming contest and and that that name won and i voted for him too i wanted wanted the 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 uh, the mannequin or at least the test the test uh, article to be named after an individual that actually did something and actually really really did something for the program the other names really didn't have that that connotation i don't recall what they were but and a reminder it's it's not a mannequin it's a moonikin Thank you. <laughs> that is what NASA is calling them. Just have to yeah. re. I know you mentioned, but I have to reemphasize. It's a Moonikin, and it's I love Moonikin. that name. That's why I'm bringing it up again. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, uh, you, do, do we really want to call the? You know, the, the should I start actually now calling the SLS the Mega Moon Rocket? 
No, no. No, we don't need to go that far. <laughs> too far. Yeah, I, I thought it's, so. It's too far um, for me. We, we are yeah. not going there. We are quite happy with SLS. Yes, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to go ahead and 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 because I, I I learned that those those little dirty words at that some of the uh, the press conferences I've been sitting in on for this mission. But uh, anyway, uh, the other two uh, should I say uh, crew members on board are uh, I believe Zo- no, um, Helga and uh, Zohan, or, or um, both of them are actually female mannequins and they are set up to do radiation checks. Moonikins. Thank you. There. (laughs) I I, I just slapped myself there. And if I do that again, I'll do it. (laughs) But I like it. It's adorable. So I'm with Sawyer. The the official style guide for talking space, it's Moonikins. It's Moonikins. Okay. Um, and if I do it again, believe me, I will grab the little rubber mallet I have over here. But any, anyway, um, they are actually geared up to do uh, radiation checks and to see how much radiation is being absorbed inside the uh, the vehicle because NASA doesn't have a lot of data um, for women on you know how much radiation their bodies will absorb and 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 so on. So they wanted to correct that with this particular mission, and and they're 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 doing that, you know, in style. I think so. Um, and of course, the the last individual that is signed up here, I saw through the ESA Twitter feed, was good old Sean the Sheep is is joining the crew. That'll be the the ESA contingent. Of course, ESA is is contributing a lot to. To this mission, uh, they will have the the service module, and they will be testing that as well. One of the big deals that I keep on seeing on on Twitter with relationship to this mission, folks, is are there going to be any cameras on board? Funny you should ask. This is also going to have a ton of cameras on board. There'll be cameras inside the uh, the crew module. Uh, movie cameras pointed at the windows and so on and so forth to try to get an idea of of what the the astronaut would would be experiencing inside the the Orion spacecraft uh, during launch and uh, and so on but the real big thing is that Orion will have a whole bunch of cameras on the outside including four GoPros at the ends of the two of the four solar panels on the on the service module so uh, we should be getting a lot of photography a lot of images a lot of video i believe there are several pao events planned during the 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 mission if they get to if we we do actually do the the 42 day uh flight and we actually do get the uh, the sls off on uh, on the 29th um so uh, again, we are going to see a lot of photography from this flight, but the main thing is to really, really test out the whole system, at, you know, basically as a whole. Um, we haven't done that yet. I mean, we, we've done a lot of ground stuff, a lot of ground studies, a lot of ground testing, but nothing beats flight testing. And that's basically what Artemis 1 is going to be all about. It's all going to be pure flight test. And I will emphasize 
that fact that this is flight test. And I will emphasize the word test. We don't expect everything to work. Uh, however, I will, if I recall on, uh, on EFT-1, uh, which was a five-hour flight, and that was Orion's first mission back in December of 2014, um, there were 78 boxes they had to check for that five-hour flight. They checked 70, um, I believe, 76 of them. And the two that did fail were, were minor. I believe there was a, a sensor dropout. And I believe there was a one of the inflatable, um, I, I guess, if, if you recall during the Apollo days, too, they had, they had this on, on the spacecraft. Um, soon as the the vehicle splashed down there are four sort of inflatable balloons that pop out of the out of the uh the the front of the vehicle uh these are there to right the vehicle in the event that you land in a you know sort of either uh on on your side and these balloons would pop up and kind of right the vehicle um stable one as it's called would be you know, landing right on the heat shield or right on the um, um, that that end of the spacecraft um, or the blunt end of the spacecraft. But if you landed stable two, which was on your side, these balloons would inflate and right the spacecraft so to put it into a stable one position. And one of the balloons on that mission failed. Those were the only two things that happened. So, you know, it could go either way. Things could either go incredibly right or things could go, eh, you know, we, we might we might miss a few things. But uh, the three if we make the three major objectives, um, we'll call it, you know, we'll call it a victory. Exactly. It is exciting. Uh, there's expected to be at least 100,000 people, which I think is a gross underestimate along the Space Coast for that launch. And uh, yeah, we will be continuing to follow it, and I am happy to announce that Talking Space will be there. I will be there uh, as a member of the press, so we will have coverage from the Kennedy Space Center of NASA's and ESA's return to the moon coming up very soon. So uh, go SLS, go Artemis. Yep, and uh, Sawyer, thanks. And I'll just be here for... down under, incredibly jealous of the giant rocket sounds you get to see and hear and feel firsthand. Yep. And Sawyer, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for at least one of us, um, one one of the team members getting down, having the opportunity to get down there, um, and uh, and witness history. Um, I'm envious as anything, but uh, uh, that's you know, so be it. Um, I had some plans. I was I was hoping to to be down there with you, and uh, I had a little bit of a ritual planned. I've been wearing this silver SLS pin on my lapel on, on, on a, on my jacket, um, for a very, very long time. And, um, I was looking forward to taking that off and putting on the gold pin, which I would be carrying with me and just handing that silver pin to the first little one that I, that I see. And, uh, um, but unfortunately that will have to wait until, um, that will have to wait until Artemis 2. So, um, again, Sawyer, thank you so much for being there. And I'm really, really looking forward to the launch audio 
and everything you're able to, to gather for this. This is going to be history in the making. Um, this is Apollo 4 all over again. And um, it will be, it'll be fascinating to, to hear what, uh, what you bring home for us. Thanks. Yeah, I, I consider this a kind of Apollo 4, Apollo 8 hybrid in terms of testing out the rocket and orbiting the moon just without people, with our moonikins instead. Yes, indeed. And uh, if I'm, one of the moonikins starts reading from the book of Genesis, I'll be surprised. I'm just saying that. OK, well, if that happens, I'm I'm going to like, you know, I'll, I'll need some some help with afterward. But um, <laughs> the um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very interested. What I'm really, really eager to hear, because I've been I've been studying the um, in fact, we did something on Apollo four a long time ago because I found the the um, uh, the press conference from that event. Um, and I, I, I actually, I think we did a podcast on that. And uh, th- there was some really interesting questions to come out of that, especially listening to it, you know, almost 50 years later. And um, one of them really, really kind of harbored, um, let's just say things, things to come in a way it had had it was a question that was asked from a gentleman from the london evening standard and it was about reusable vehicles apparently the the second stage did not fare well and during during uh staging and um he asked what the future of uh reusable boosters were and uh given the fact that the second stage kind of you know fell apart and it was Werner von Braun who had a very interesting answer to that question, um, saying that that NASA had been studying reusable booster for some time now, and if they had a contract, they'd know how to build one. And he said the problem with reusable booster is you've got to amortize the um, development cost against you know when do you think you're going to get your money back in 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 that under that development cost and um given the program the apollo program at that time they were only going to build about 15 saturn fives during the course of the program and he thought well you know if you're only going to build 15 you're never going to get your money back um with reference to the saturn five and he said now if you're going to build a hundred of them you know you, you you might be able to get your money back um so, and, and this is an example I've kind of brought up when it comes to reusability a lot. And it's still something that I, I don't really, I, I don't know if the data is out there. Um, Eric Berger's book, I haven't read it yet, um, apparently does have something in there about that. Um, I, I'd have to read it to go ahead and, 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 and comment, but it kind of boded, it kind of boded for the future. And uh, whenever I mention that, I always mention uh, Von Braun's Apollo 4 comment, and I point to it. So I'm very, very eager to hear what kind of line of questioning the press is going to have for uh, for Tom Whitmire and friends when, uh, when uh, Artemis 1 goes, because this is really going to be an Apollo 4 moment. Exactly. And again, we'll have it for you coming up on Talking Space. 
As we continue along, uh, we're going to talk about another rocket uh, that launches from the United States. Uh, This one, though, has launched and hasn't launched in a way, and that is the Antares rocket, which you're probably going, yeah, of course it's launched. You've covered it on the show many times. Well, yes, Northrop Grumman does have the Antares current version, but that one's about to run out. And uh, Gene, can you explain a little bit of why that is and where we're going next? Sure, Sawyer. Um, here's the here's the problem that Northrop Grumman has right now. Um, as unless you've been kind of hiding under a rock since March, um, you're probably well aware of the fact that uh, uh, Russia has uh, has invaded Ukraine, and um, as a result of that invasion, it had far-reaching implications into the U.S. space program. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, a Ukrainian company builds the core stage for the Antares launch vehicle. And just recently, by recently, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was noted that that facility, that fabrication facility, where the core stage is built, was utterly destroyed in in a Russian... Russian uh, incursion. Uh, So that really, really orphaned um, the Antares launch vehicle and put Northrop Grumman in a bit of a bind. They have two cores left from the original, from, well, the Antares uh, 230 series, as they're calling it. The Antares 230 um, also uses the Russian-made RD-191 engines. Now, again, because of sanctions and things like that, we cannot use those engines anymore. Um, And again, uh, Northrop Grumman has enough material to go ahead and launch two more Antares launch vehicles. I believe the first one is scheduled for this fall sometime. And then the last Antares 230 will be launched uh, sometime during the first half of next year. And then that's pretty much it for Antares. It's, it's pretty much, or at least that iteration of, of Antares is pretty much over and done with. So that kind of leaves uh, Northrop Grumman and Cygnus looking for a ride for a while. Well, just this week, an announcement was made by uh, Northrop Grumman and a very unlikely player, Firefly Aerospace. Now, Firefly has not really launched anything successfully just yet. They had a, they did have a launch attempt a while back ago. Unfortunately, that launch attempt did not work out the way they had planned. Um, but they are continuing to go ahead and plow forward. In fact, they have uh, not one but two rockets uh, in the pipeline. North of Grumman signed a basically a um, a partnership arrangement with Firefly. Firefly will produce what is now being called the Antares three thirty launch vehicle. Um, it will use seven of Firefly's Miranda engines and uh, uh, leverage um, technologies for uh, composites 
of a core stage, if I'm looking at this press release correctly. Um, Northrop Grumman will provide the avionics, the software, the upper stage structures, and of course, they are sticking with the Castor 30XL solid rocket motor as the second stage, which would propel Cygnus to the International Space Station and give it that last kick. Um, essentially, what they're doing is they're taking, and if you look at the Firefly website, and uh, I'll go there real real fast, that's firefly.com, um, and you look up the beta rocket under, I believe it's under launch in their, uh, in their menu, and you look at um, the beta, and it uses RP-1, the same thing that uh, the Antares uses, um, and it uses the seven Miranda engines. Um, so, in essence, what Northrop Grumman is doing is they're basically saying, okay, Firefly, we're taking it seriously. We want to have a American-made launch vehicle for Cygnus. We want to go ahead and, and have this thing be reliable and so on. So they're, they're basically hitching their wagon with Firefly. And I think what's going to happen here is Firefly is going to be taught a few things. Um, about space launch from and from an old space partner in Northrop Grumman. This is kind of the same marriage that um, United Launch Alliance and um, and Blue Origin are enjoying. You have the you know the old the old hand United Launch Alliance uh, hitching up with the the new the new space uh, group. Uh, in Blue Origin. Well, here you have another case of old space, if you will, and I hate using that term, but it's the only one I can think of to use, hooking up with new space, which is Firefly here. And uh, they're basically going to be learning things from each other. Um, And I think Firefly is probably going to be the beneficiary uh, if they decide to go with their, their beta rocket. The other thing, too, is I think this puts Antares, since they're going to be using composites with the um, with the new core stage, the core first stage, um, this puts them in a whole new ball game. This puts them in a whole new area. And I think they may be able to go ahead and capture more of a commercial, um, more the possibility of cap- capturing commercial launches because that was something they were unable to do with Antares um, under under the old uh, under the old system. They were just using it to launch Cygnus. Now I think they might be able to go ahead and really really market it um, for that you know mid lift um, launch capability. So it, it's going to be interesting to see what Antares is going to deliver. Um, other than Cygnus, uh, for the future of uh, that mid-range uh, launch, um, under the old um, under the old Antares two thirty, um, it was able to deliver that kind of kick, almost the same amount of lift cap- capacity as an Atlas five four hundred one. So it, it should be interesting to see what the new Antares should be able to deliver. The Antares 330 
by way of a punch to see if it's going to be in that same uh, that same neighborhood or even more powerful. So th- this is a big plus for U.S. space. It's a big plus for for Firefly, and it's a big win for Northrop Grumman. I think you'll they'll have an indigenous um, launch vehicle afterward um, with engines that are made here. This was a, something I didn't see coming. Um, I thought for sure that um, uh, my my bet was that AR-1 was eventually going to find a home on a, a redesigned Antares later on down the line, but it, it looks like um, that was not the case. AR-1 is basically the, uh, the indigenous uh, engine that uh, uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne was, was designing. That's not going to be the case here. It is going to be the Miranda engine from Firefly uh, that will basically be powering Antares into the future. So uh, good luck to, uh, to this new partnership. I hope both learn some new tricks. Uh, it sounds like the new Antares is going to be a lighter, meaner vehicle. And uh, uh, who knows, we, we may actually see some commercial launches out of Antares, which would probably make for an interesting time out at, um, uh, at, uh, out at NASA Wallops and the, um, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport here. I know it's about to get real busy with, um, with Rocket Lab having a, uh, a, a, a launch pad not too far away from Pad Zero A, uh, where, um, where uh, uh, Antares launches from. So we're going to see a very, very busy mid-Atlantic regional spaceport in, in the coming years. I should add, too, that um, in the meantime, uh, Northrop Grumman still understands they have a, uh, an obligation to the American taxpayer. They, they have agreed that they are going to launch or get cargo and logistics to the International Space Station but they don't have a ride, right? Well, not exactly true. Um, Northrop Grumman also announced as part of this that they will be going ahead and um, uh, buying three rides from SpaceX uh, to launch the, uh, the Cygnus to the International Space Station. Uh, Cygnus is um, booster agnostic because the way it was designed by then Orbital Sciences. And uh, it should be very, very interesting to see Cygnus flying on basically their their competition, if you will. Um, but after that, I think, the you know, once Antares gets in, in shape, I don't know, if, is, it, is it going to be a, um, a Falcon 9 competitor? We'll have to see. Um, but SpaceX will be given... Um, we'll be giving uh, Cygnus wings, if you will, for three launches. The other thing, too, that I, I and, and this was a question that Charlie Bolden had, had asked during the uh, the NASA Advisory Council meeting just this past uh, couple of days ago, actually. Um, now, he knew that Cygnus was uh, sort of booster agnostic, is the same for Cargo Dragon. And nobody had the answer for that. And I tried to find it. Before the show started, I couldn't find it. Um, so that's really a SpaceX question. Could Dragonfly on on some something else? I don't know. 
That, that, that's a very good question. Should something happen to Falcon? I, I don't know the answer to that one. But um, it, it, the alliance, again, will be very interesting to watch between Firefly and Northrop Grumman. And again, I think the, the two are going to learn a lot from each other. And I think the two are, are going to go into the future. And, and the future is going to look really, really bright for Antares going forward. It's amazing to see such an adaptable vehicle, I have to say, when you've got the, uh, you know, the Antares that's now flown on Atlas, that's able to fly on, or the uh, Cygnus that's flying on uh, Atlas, that's flying on Falcon, and will eventually fly on the 330 as well. It's great. And again, to see, like you said, it's a bad term, but old space and new space working together. It's about time. Yeah, and, and the other thing too, Sawyer, is, is Cygnus is a really, really adaptable spacecraft, as we're finding out. So uh, it, it too could just be a, a self-contained laboratory in and of itself. It, it, it's acted in that mode several times. So Cygnus has got a lot of promise. Um, I, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm doing a Northrop Grumman commercial, and I'm, I apologize if that this is coming along that way, but I'm just saying that this is a very, very adaptable vehicle. And I think Northrop Grumman... Um, has just scratched the surface with its abilities. I was just doing a bit of, as they would say down under, sneaky little Googling um, <laughs> about whether or not there was any, anyone had put out if um, Crew Dragon was rated for other vehicles and someone um, suspected it it was rated for at least Atlas, but they couldn't, they couldn't confirm that. And of course, as you mentioned before, that would just not even be relevant now because there's no, there's no Atlases that are, um, or Atlas fives that are, that are available still to, um, they're all spoken for. Um, but also, um, they noted that, um, Starliner is, is made to be interchangeable. So that's, that's great to hear that, you know, regardless of, of if Dragon can fly on more than just Falcon, it looks like, uh, with Starliner coming on board, that it is rated for, will be rated for multiple vehicles. Indeed. And um, again, Kat, thank you for bringing that up. That was one of the things I did uh, I did fail to mention. Um, that's one of the reasons why um, Northrop Grumman did not go with ULA on this, is because all of the, the, the Atlas V rides are spoken for. Atlas V is flying out the, the string, if you will, and will be replaced by Vulcans. So um, Atlas V was just not an option at that time. So at this time at all. So um, that's probably the reason why Northrop Grumman went with SpaceX because it, you know, it's it's there, it's ready, the boosters are there. Just go with it and you know, bite the bullet for three launches and uh, and then. Uh, go back to uh, to Wallops and, and fly Antares again. I should also mention, too, the one thing I did mess up with is that they expect an 18-month lead time for that, for the development of the new uh, Antares 330. Uh, so this is kind of going to be kind of a, and I don't want to use the term crash program, but that's the only thing that comes to mind right now. Um... Uh, to to get Antares out there, 
I'm sure if it goes a little over, I'm sure SpaceX will be glad to take Northrop Grumman's money and and go ahead and get another Cygnus uh, or two up to the International Space Station. But uh, again, we'll, we'll see how things go. But uh, fingers crossed for the new venture and wishing both Firefly and Northrop Grumman all the best. Because again, if this little alliance works, uh, the U.S. space program continues on, on, on the right path. Exactly. And this is extra important as well that we can keep getting Cygnus up there because right now, Cygnus is the U.S. way of boosting the International Space Station, which was done during a test, because otherwise all the boosting is done typically from the Russian side of the space station, which if you've been following any ISS rumors with everything currently going on with Russia, uh, there has been talks of Russia leaving the space station by 2024. It made all of the major news networks even here in the United States and uh Gene, I know you wanted to, before we wrapped anything up here, clarify this a little bit. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, Well, um, first off, there was a changing in the guard, if you will. Uh, Everybody's favorite, favorite mouthpiece in Russia, uh, Dmitry Rogozin, uh, was tossed out by uh, Vladimir Putin. New gentleman went ahead and took over um, and promptly announced that the um, that Roscosmos would be departing the ISS partnership sometime at the end of 2024. Well, that kind of really, really got translated into Russia's leaving the ISS um, here in the United States. Now, when that first said, you know, when that first cut loose on on the air my reaction was <laughs> yawn um the reason why is this has been sort of a, a hollow threat since oh good lord since i'd say probably 2014 maybe even a little further back than that um they've been yelling and screaming about their own uh you know their own aspirations and how they're going to go ahead and uh, do all this other stuff, how they're going to build a, you know, a lunar base and uh, a nuclear powered lunar base and all of this. And I remember a presentation um, at uh, Sawyer, I believe, I don't know if you were in the same room or not, but this was over at, uh, during Space Fest 6, um, where uh, I believe it was Anatoly Zak was doing a presentation and he was saying that this this was the Roscosmos plan. They were going to go ahead, essentially, build a, a nuclear-powered lunar base by 2040 or 2050 and all this other stuff. And I, I sat there, and I, I, I remember looking over at, um, I, I forget who it was, who, um, who it was but it was um, one of the members of the UK contingent that I was kind of hanging out with. And, and I, we kind of looked at each other like, with what money? Um because even at that point they were cash strapped. Um, now with with all the sanctions and and so on, they are really really cash strapped, really really component cash strapped. But um, the dirty little secret about the ISS is the following: um, Russia is stuck. They really really can't go anywhere else. Yeah, okay, fine. They could go ahead and say, well, we're going to take our modules and go home. 
Well, it doesn't work that way. Yes, they control all of the attitude control. We can go ahead and, and lift the ISS with Cygnus, but as, um, excuse me, as uh, Joel Montalbano himself, who is the uh, ISS program manager for NASA, explained that the Russians have full attitude control of the International Space Station. It's just the way the beast was, was built. Russia had, had has full attitude control during the, those boost sessions, meaning we can boost, but the Russians basically maintain the configuration of the ISS and its place in space as it's being boosted. The conversely is that the United States side of the house is in control of all of the power on board the International Space Station. Those those solar arrays, that's our turf. We go ahead and distribute the power to the International Space Station, the entire complex. That includes Kibo, the, 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 the JAXA um, module, the Columbus module, the, which belongs to ESA, and yes, the Russian segment as well. So the two are interlinked. There's just no way that you can get around that, and, and that's that. The problem also on the Russian side is the following. They leave the station. They've really got nowhere else to go. Um, their, their space program is designed such that it's totally dependent on the International Space Station right now. They, they are talking about building their own complex, but their timelines are kind of off. The new complex, the... Russian Orbital Space Station, or ROS, or, or Ross, as, as I've seen it called, um, that's still far off into the future. And the way things are going with the conflict, I don't know if they're going to have the components to go ahead and, and build this thing and get it going in the timeline that they say they're going to go ahead and build it in. Um, so they're kind of stuck. Um, and I believe... Sergei Krikalov basically defined what they meant by leaving the ISS um, a little more during the Crew-5 uh, press conference. As you know, a Russian um, cosmonaut, excuse me, a Russian cosmonaut is going to fly on the SpaceX Crew-5 mission. Um, and he basically clarified it and basically said, well, yeah, we're talking about, uh, you know, leaving, we're not talking about leaving, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of committed to this. Um, but we are looking at the future and the future is definitely going to be this new station that we're going to build. But, um, the, the press over here are still running with, with the announcement that the ISS is, is going to be left in the dust by the Russians. In fact, there was still a question, I believe, um, from the American Broadcasting Company, ABC, uh, two Sundays ago on, on their This Week program when uh, uh, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson appeared. And he was asked a question about it. And they're still kind of probing, saying that, well, Russia's going to leave, you know, in 2024. Well, no, they're not. And the reason why is, again, there, there's really nowhere else for them to go. And I think they understand that right now. Um, they just also don't, have, if you will, the wherewithal 
to go ahead and get this this new station up there in in, in the time period that it's they're they're supposed to have this and it should be kind of interesting too in that um well once the iss does end in 2030 and and we bid it farewell what the russian space program is going to look like and it will be very 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 interesting to watch as they decided not to join the gateway program um they had the the offer to go ahead and and furnish the uh the airlock for that, and then uh, Dmitry goes and said, "No, we're going to take a pass on that. We think we should have a bigger role, and um, and that's that. And uh, uh, we're we're almost close to getting that new partner for the for the airlock. I believe that was also announced during the uh, um, that was also said during the uh, uh, the uh, NASA um, advisory council meeting." Uh, just this past week, they they don't have that announcement ready yet, but it looks like it's pending. Um, but it's going to be very very interesting to watch what happens to the Russian program post ISS, and if they're able to recover from the wounds that. Great. Three, two, one. Was that Russia? Yeah. <laughs> um, from the wounds that was um, that that uh, right, let's go go back. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Three, two, one. It should be interesting to see uh, how long it's going to take Russia um, to recover from these self-inflicted wounds uh, that um, that Ukraine that this the, the Ukrainian conflict has has given them. So. Stay tuned. Uh, keep watching um, Roscosmos and the ISS and all of this because it's going to get really, really interesting. Yeah, this isn't a good interesting, but it's definitely interesting nonetheless. And yeah. uh, it's going to be unique to see where this goes. And yes, I was with you there at Space Fest 6 going, what in the world are they talking about? So... It's interesting to see it all come to fruition all these years later, or at least them try to make it come to fruition. Yeah, sorry, what breaks my heart is is the Russian space program has such a long his- history and a, and a great illustrious history of firsts of, of all of this. And to see it become a, a shell of itself because of, you know, a, a piece of adventurism that really shouldn't have happened to begin with, um, it is just, it's just mind boggling to me. And, uh, I, I know I'm kind of, kind of stepping into the world of politics and I do apologize for that because I, every time I, I step into that world, I have to go ahead and wipe my shoes off. But, um, um, it, it's, it's, it's just sad to, to see this program that was a proud program just crumbling right before my very eyes. Yeah. And again, though, when you think of, you know, the space agency as a whole, uh, Roscosmos, as we now know it, it began in the Cold War. So it began in a time of war. Although, again, this is not a Cold War with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, there are people's lives who are being lost and there's active military engagements and fighting and all of the all of that. But yeah, that's how it started. And then obviously things changed a lot following the uh, fall of the Soviet Union right around the time that uh, Space Station Freedom became the International Space Station, partly after that. And 
it all kind of came together there and it was nice to see that cooperation at least until now but yeah it's it's a shame to see where it's gone and at this rate where it's going you're bringing back a lot of memories sawyer i was an intern at the national space society when that got announced <laughs> and uh yeah i'm serious and 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 i remember uh talking with um i believe it was david brandt uh laurie garver's significant other and uh we were having a really interesting discussion our jaws were like wow you know the, you know we were like this was this was this was a this was a, a big development and we were kind of, i i we were kind of excited about it i had some reservations but i understood why it was was being done and it turned out for the best for the most part i mean um there's still talk of you know the nobel peace prize for the international space station if you think about it um i will end my conversation uh, with this little fact though um today opens up a mars launch window and um, this would have been where a, um, a certain little rover that is now sitting um, patiently awaiting its fate and patiently waiting, wondering what it's, what's next for it, would be inside a fairing um, getting ready to go to Mars. Instead, it is sitting in storage. Um, this is the Rosalind Franklin rover um, from ESA. And we still don't know exactly what its future is going to be. I know they're working diligently with NASA to figure out what a plan B might look like. Um, but uh, again, as um, Andrew Jones, uh, who's a superb uh, writer um, who watches basically China's program. And if you're not following him on Twitter, I have to ask why. Um, he made the observation today that this was... Uh, the start of uh, this would have been the, the the launch window or the start of the, the the Mars launch season, and it's a darn shame to know that we had something in to put in that window, and because of you know adventurism and stupidity, um, it's it's just going to be a lost opportunity for for humanity really. Well said. Now, uh, let's end things off here on a slightly happier, slightly not as happy kind of <laughs> note here. And uh, it involves a program that we know and love environmentally and some of the important findings that we've been getting, and that is the Landsat program. And there was an important handover, and uh, we're also getting some new data from some of our other Earth-observing satellites about some not as good news. Kat, do you want to take this one? Sure. So um, I guess this started uh, with me just uh, noticing a, a study that was recently published about the loss of Antarctic ice. And um, I just made a comment on Twitter that Earth observation is one of my favorite benefits of, of space exploration is that we get to learn so much about our planet. And a lot of it's really important data, especially in terms of um, knowing the health of our planet, where we are with climate change, but also for important things such as agriculture and and other impacts. And 
Um, so I tweeted that and someone um, responded and asked about sort of the history of Earth observation, especially in terms of spaceflight planning. Um, and so I mentioned a, a couple of NASA programs. If you're looking at the U.S. history of, of space observation, I mentioned Landsat because um, Landsat has uh, the first Landsat launched in 1972 and the most recent one launched um in I think it was 2021, um, and I, that might be correct, uh, incorrect. So uh, feel free to let us know if I'm wrong, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure you always will. But um, the program has been conducting, you know, Earth observations for quite some time, and Landsat was uh, actually responded to both of us with a, a great open access publication about the history of Landsat. Um, from from the early days of the program prior to any of the launches to, to where they are now. So uh, we'll drop that link in the show notes and encourage all of you to, to check it out because it is really fantastic um, what is available to read um, from historical perspective from NASA programs and other um, spaceflight programs within the United States. But it was also very interesting timing because just today, actually, NASA handed over the um, key to the Landsat 9 um, to the USGS. Um, so it was something that was very exciting that happened there. And I know if Jean, I think you might have watched that live, so you might have a couple comments on it. I Unfortunately, it happened sort of in the middle of the night for me, so I did not watch it live, although I did um, you know, have a look at the news story afterwards. I did see it on Twitter. Um, that, that I, I just saw the news story on Twitter. I follow the... Uh, the, the Landsat account as well. And I also kind of pepper my, uh, my uh, Twitter account liberally, if you will, with a lot of the, uh, the NASA earth posts and, and the Landsat stuff too. Cause I think too, Kat, you're on the right track. Um, this is one of the, the main reasons, you know, sure. We want to go ahead and explore. We want to go ahead and, and take a look at other worlds because you know, we, we kind of learn a little bit more about our own, but we also want to take care of this place. We also want to make sure that, uh, that this place is, is, uh, is doing well and is healthy because right now there is no planet B. Um, Earth exactly. is it. Exactly. Earth is- and, and to that, and also I think that the Earth observations are one of the, the more easily seen tangible benefits of space exploration. Um, so it's important that that we raise awareness that it's really important what we do in space because it's not just about you know the future of humanity it's about humanity right now and it's about our, our earth and planet right now and the, the study that first caught my eye was what was recently um, released by our friends over at nasa jpl and there were twin studies that were um, published one in nature which as you may be aware is um, the science publications that means very very good research very stringent peer review and the other one was um, published in Earth System Science Data. But both of these um, studies found that um, it doubled the previous estimates of loss from the ice shelves and delved into what's causing those things, what's causing the change in the ice shelf. Um, also, it was the first map of iceberg calving, which is really interesting. Um, and this is really important information because the loss of, of ice in Antarctica has has significant impacts on on our climate, um, everything from temperature to sea level rise. And they used um, data from from space in order to to make all these estimates and to find that um, 
what we knew was happening and what we knew was accelerating was actually happening faster and more than, than we expected. Um, I know that sort of, we don't like to too much dip our toes into politics here, but it is interesting to see this um, because climate is a, is a big issue. We recently had a federal election here in Australia, and I would say probably one of the number one issues that um, swung voters and, and swung districts was issues on climate change. Um, it, it's an, it's really important. I mean, we've seen the, the massive heat waves that are taking place in Europe and across the United States. Um, we've had incredible rain here in Australia over the last year. And it's just been, you know, we are seeing impacts from um, from how we treat our planet. So studies like this are really important because they help us understand how Earth is now so we can take steps to ensure Earth remains habitable uh, for everyone in the future. So I just thought that it was an interesting study and wanted to um, take a take a minute to, to mention it and so that we can drop the links in the show notes for, for you all to go and read those. And there's some really great... Um, uh, write-ups of it because if I, I had a look this morning at the the Nature article and it is you know somewhat scientific so it might not be everyone's cup of tea but um, um there are a few great write-ups and so we'll also drop a link to one of the write-ups for those who may not want to read the actual scientific study although there are some very fascinating charts in there and I'm a huge fan of charts so uh, if you if you're able to I would suggest just even having a look through it because when you can visually see something. Um, it sometimes has more of an impact, which is something else we know from Earth observation, right? When you can see your planet as a whole, or you can see the Earth rise over the moon's horizon, um, it can change the way you feel about our little blue marble. And Kat, that's one of the things that NASA's trying to do. They're trying to get all of this, this data available in one place um, and sort of have a have a command center, if you will, for all of Earth science data, so that it, it it's and that it all becomes open source and would be available to anybody that that truly wants it. And the idea is to go ahead and make sure that that data is there for folks that really really need to go ahead and make decisions based on that data. So that's one exactly. of the things that NASA NASA has in, in in its back pocket. Question I had for that's you, real exactly quick. That's exactly what I was gonna. I was just going to say one of the things that I think NASA particularly should be recognized for uh, is the incredible open access of its data that it provides. And even in the interview that we that um, Mark did with the uh, uh, TDRIP people, they talk about that all of their data is actually open and accessible for everyone. So it's really something that, that should be commended um, for a government agency to be so open with its data. Yeah, and... and 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 they're trying to even even push to push that out further and make making to to make sure that that is is available to everybody that needs it the question i had for you cat real fast did they say mm -hmm. what spacecraft were being used in in the collection of all of the data i'm i'm just wondering because i know isat 2 has been up there for a while and i'm just wondering if if it had a had a had a you know hand in this so they didn't i didn't um see the exact spacecraft, but they did say that um, when they were mapping the ice loss, that, or at least the second study, um, that they used almost 3 billion data points from seven space-borne altimetry instruments. Um, so My I believe that the- would pile yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, probably ice And I know that um, the JPL site listed what two satellites um, or what two missions that they were. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have that right in front of me, and it's just not on the top of my head. 
Okay. I, I was just curious. That's all. Yeah, no, no, no worries. And again, thank you for, for sharing that. And, and this, again, that's also one of my, my big deals as well. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. I do know that. Let's see if it said, um, cause I remember I was like, Oh, what missions were they? And I was looking at the, the JPL, um, so it's a, a NASA glacier mapping project, um, but it says in the in the um, JPL article our missions are listed at the bottom. And I remember looking earlier, and I was like, I don't see the missions very easily listed, but it could just be, you know, my web browser. Who knows? But no worries. Um, yeah. It's because you're reading everything upside down in Australia. That's why it's at the top, <laughs> not the bottom. <laughs> oh, uh, what would it be without a Sawyer with a Sawyer dad joke? <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to end this episode off then. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And um, again, I, I I just want to go ahead and, and reach out and say thank you to everybody that sent me a little bit of uh, well wishes and, and so on. I had a little bit of a medical emergency a while back ago, and it kind of deals with a little bit why we've been on hiatus, you know, there have been several of us on the cast here that have been having some, you know, medical challenges. And I I had just posted a a photograph of, um, you know, where I was at that time. And I was in my hospital room and I I was just a little overwhelmed um, with the amount of people that had sent some good wishes, not only the amount of people, but who did. And, um, I was, I was quite touched by, by all of that. And, um, I just want to take an opportunity. Uh, and I know I, I, I said this on Twitter, but, um, your, your words, um, had not gone unnoticed or unappreciated and they had been to, to no end. Um, the, uh, the situation is still ongoing, sadly. Um, and, uh, it's, it's something that, uh, I'm not ready to talk about just yet, but uh, I will in the future if um, if if I have to vanish from this microphone for a little bit. Um, I know this team is is quite capable, and um, uh, they will be able to go ahead and and carry on for a while. But um, I just wanted to say again, thank you so much to everyone that that really sent a a, a DM or dropped me a line or or anything like that because you know i i I was almost brought to tears in fact you know i i actually was i had a little bit of a bold moment and um to all of you you know your your appreciation is 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 just overwhelming so thanks yes i've been the other person that's been out with some of those uh medical issues so we appreciate your patience with us and all the kind words and thank you all for joining us kat robson it's always a pleasure to be here and um, and to be able to talk about the things that make us really passionate. So um, thanks for that. And thanks for Sawyer and Jean for um, all of the wonderful things that you bring going out to launch us. And Sawyer uh, and Jean, I don't just don't know how you have time to listen to everything you do, but I'm always, always impressed. So it's, it's fantastic to be on here and get to be with our listeners. And Kat, thanks a lot for you delivering everything you've you've been able to deliver to the show. I mean, the last last one 
that we did uh, 1405 folks if you haven't heard it yet please listen because there was a, there's some really great goodies in there that 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 cat brought to the table and i'm so looking forward to hearing um all the goodness from the land down under um <laughs> well also start- i think there was just a phenomenal interview that mark did on that show so really yeah, a I lot agree. about yeah so and of course, the most important thank you I have to say personally is to you, the listener. Thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.